0: Should our classrooms be teacher-centred or student-centred? That is the question. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik. You're listening to Learning Capacity. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience-based language and reading programs since 1999. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash LearnFast. And remember, you can comment on this podcast by sending your emails to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. Teacher-centred versus student-centred learning is one of the debates that's receiving a lot of attention around the world in modern education. It's a classic situation where some would like to go completely student-centred, some would like to hang on to what they know, and others are somewhere in between. And what about self-directed learning? Are all students capable of being self-directed, or does a student need a certain aptitude to make it work? My guest today is Simon Brooks, who now works with schools in the change management process as they consider new frameworks and ideas for education. Simon has worked extensively with the Project Zero team at Harvard University and is a specialist in developing cultures of thinking. In this episode, Simon shares how his experiences influence his ideas on this debate. Simon Brooks, thanks for joining us again. A pleasure. Something that you're very keen to talk about is the argument for student-centred learning versus teacher-centred learning. Let me uh, start you off with something fairly hard-hitting. John Taylor Gatto, in his book, Weapons of Mass Instruction, and what's <laughs> not to like about that title, he tells a story about how a principal asks him to help develop a program for uh, for critical thinking within the school. And he says, well, of course, I'd like to help you with that. But he wants the principal to say that if we do this right, it's going to make your school unmanageable because, uh, quote, uh, why would kids taught to think critically and express themselves effectively put up with the nonsense that we force down their throats? So it's a little bit like an awakening moment mm. or like the matrix, you know, red, uh, the red yeah. pill or the blue pill. Which pill are you going to take? Exactly. Are we at risk of doing the same thing here in Australia?
1: Well, intellectual unmanageability sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea.
0: <laughs> but risky to some.
1: I will, I, if, I, if my classroom is a place where children are constantly critiquing ideas respectfully, not each other, rudely, challenging ideas, challenging notions, being healthily sceptical about concepts, being curious about the ideas that they're, being, that they're exploring together. If that's what it is to be um, unmanageable, that sounds brilliant. I'm not advocating um, being unmanageable behaviour, Mm. But I think if we can work for a world that separates the behavior from the intellectual work that's going on in that space, then I'd advocate that completely. I've not read that book, but I love the sound of it, Colin.
0: Well, as I said, the title sounds pretty good too. (laughs) This keys into the self-directed learning debate because um, if students really do become self-directed or if they do become true critical thinkers and express themselves effectively, how do do we then manage that whatever we might suggest to them – just might not interest them anymore. I mean, or let's look at it this way. If what if what happens if they become so interested in things that we're just completely unprepared for? What do we do then?
1: Well, I think that probably speaks to this another interesting point which is as teachers, do we need to represent ourselves as custodians of all knowledge if students find pathways of interest that engage them that we're not particularly um prepared for that we may not be as knowledgeable about as we'd like nonetheless there is still great value in the, in them exploring that pathway maybe as teachers if if we try to represent ourselves as feeling excited about the opportunity of learning as much from our students as they might learn from us if we can if we can inhabit that particular paradigm then i think that would that space will help us find pathways through that puzzle
0: I can't help thinking that it's still the adults who are debating the debate. In other words, it's us who are saying we think this is best for the children. Do we even know that this is what the children want? Do they actually want to be themselves centred in their learning?
1: It's always a good space, I think, to begin with, to ask students what they want and what's working for them. Um, And that's where student questionnaires and actually just talking to students, not just student questionnaires, Mm. can be such a, a valuable experience. Where I, where I stand on this debate is also where I stand on many debates, which is, I think, polarizing is probably a dangerous place to go. So if we think on, on if we've got an extreme left-wing stance, which is almost like a sort of um, laissez-faire approach to teaching and learning, many of the romantics, um, such as Coleridge, for instance, mm. advocated this type of approach. Let's let children wander off into the world and they will discover. Right. Um, and there are some education systems which are which still operate which are built on those type of ideas then at the extreme right wing we can think about the whole the old fashioned stand and deliver style you know and there there's a the, i think of charles dickens hard times when uh, i think it's mr gradgrind and the wonderfully named mr muckchokum child Oh, that's in an that interesting text. name. They're very much so. How about that? And they talk about uh, what we want is we want children dutifully uh, arranged in rows in the classroom, ready yeah. to have imperial gallons of facts poured into them until they're full to the brim. So we've got that approach on the extreme right. We have the laissez-faire approach on the extreme left. Are either of those approaches on their own the right way to go with young people? Mm. I mean, as teachers, what, what is our role? Sometimes our role is to be ideas purveyors. Yeah. You know, we, we've got some interesting expertise to share. So let's share that expertise. I don't think should, that teachers should feel pushed out of the education they experience. But then on the other side of it, well, we're learning facilitators. Yeah. We're there to ask questions that help children forge their own understandings. Why is it that um, we need to inhabit either extreme pole? Why can't we find a space in the middle that best serves the learning experience and the development of understanding that takes place within the learners with whom we work?
0: How do we then handle that that polling process? How do we get into the minds of the students to say, look, what is it that you want?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, in my experience, often when we get towards the high stakes of um, our time with students, so if we're, talking, if we're talking about New South Wales, Australia, where we're, we're running this interview, we're thinking about the HSC examinations. Yeah. And when children get into years 11 and 12, their two final years, then quite often, as a teacher myself, students have looked at me and they said, come on, Mr. Brooks, get out the spoon. <laughs>
0: yes, Spoon have, feed us. Yeah, feed me.
1: <laughs> Tell me what I need to know in order to do well in this examination, because this examination well, the results of that are going to affect my ATAR score, and that's going to affect the course I get into in university. So stop playing around with all of this silliness. Stop playing yeah. around with these, these things, these thinking routines you're doing, trying to get us to think.
0: Just get me over the line.
1: We haven't really got time for that now. Yeah. And what comes from that sometimes is, is quite a dangerous sort of secret unspoken pact that exists between teachers and students, which is that students submit to being bored senseless by their teacher in the name of high academic achievement. Since when, I wonder, do students always know what's in their best interests? Mm. Is that the thing that's actually going to get them to high academic 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 achievement? And also, is that the thing that's going to benefit them best as they go through the rest of their lives?
0: As we're talking about this, I can imagine that many teachers might be thinking, hold on a second, I can feel the balance of power shifting I've got less power. Some might be thinking, great, I don't want any power at all. I'm quite happy to sit at the back of the room and do nothing while the students do everything. But I can imagine some teachers, again, here's the polarization thing coming out, saying, hang on, that means I'm going to lose control in my classroom. What would you say to people who are in the, uh, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose control camp?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm seeing this, this come out as an anxiety a lot in classrooms around Australia at the moment. Right. So when Alive been- and well then. Yeah, Oh, very much so. And I've, I've been in classrooms and I've seen this happen more than once where teachers will begin a lesson and they'll say something like this to the students. They'll say, OK, guys, we're going to start our lesson. Apologies. I'm going to talk to you for about 10 minutes. Um, but then after I've done that, then you can get on with some learning activities.
0: Sorry, you're going to have to hear me talking.
1: <laughs> That's right. I apologize for being an expert and for knowing interesting things. You'll have to submit to that for a bit before we get to the good stuff. And when I hear that happen, then I start reflecting and thinking, well, why is it that teachers are saying these type of things? What, what are they tuning into?
0: Yeah, why would I apologize for myself?
1: Yeah, you know, what, where's the guilt coming from here, you know? And I think it's because, and this is just my theory, that there is this raging debate at the moment in education between student-centered and teacher-centered learning. There is a prevailing paradigm, and I think it's, it's a pretty strong paradigm, which is student-centered is best. And the work I do around cultures of thinking might be misrepresented as suggesting that it's all about that and there's no place for the yeah, teacher. Yeah. So I think that teachers tune into that and they start thinking, okay, really, I'm, I'm not here to be an expert anymore. Um, I'm here to facilitate the children's learning. So there's no place for my wisdom. There's no place for my expertise. You know, that worries me. And I think it's also compounded by another approach in education, which relates back to self-directed learning. I think there's there's a lot of schools out there that think we get self-directed learners by building expensive and fancy spaces for them.
0: Oh, things, with, uh, yeah, I like to call it the Ikea room.
1: Very much so, yeah, with a lot of <laughs> lovely soft furnishings, you know. Yeah, and bright um, colours. And they can sit wherever they want in it and they can lie down as well and they can, you know, because that's how they learn at home in their bedrooms. And and maybe they've got an on some sort of online learning platform where they can access their the mm. learning experience through. And there's, again, for me, this is dangerous. If, do children become self-directed learners if we as teachers abdicate responsibility for their learning or perhaps paradoxically do children become self-directed learners when we as teachers work even harder with them to help them acquire that disposition
0: so do we know that at all I mean is there any is there any work being done on finding out the answer to that question
1: well the work that I'm affiliated with um, with the folks at Project Zero at the Harvard Graduate School of Education has been working on these ideas for many years and they explore the dispositional approach to learning. In other words, how can, we children, how can we help children develop the disposition to be self-directed learners? Okay. Now, that doesn't mean leaving them alone. In many ways, the cultural force of interactions, this is Ron Richard's cultural force of interactions, plays even more here. I guess the question we as teachers can always be asking ourselves is, who is doing the thinking in my classroom? So if we let that question guide everything we do, if we're constantly resisting the urge to do the thinking ourselves, but we're pushing it back to the students, what makes you say that? Why is that idea important to you? How does that idea connect with what Bob said earlier on? Those type of questions that come through the language we use and the interactions we have, that's what builds the disposition to be self-directed in young people.
0: online or on your mobile device. You can subscribe to Learning Capacity and explore our entire archive. Visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast or search for Learning Capacity on iTunes. It sounds to me like the, uh, the anxiety that you mentioned before is not necessarily happening just from the shift of power, but from the perception that the importance is being lowered and i guess if you think about saying to walking up to someone and saying um hello i'd just like to inform you today that as of today you're going to become less powerful you'll have less influence Mm. and uh on top of that you're going to be less important sounds like most
1: episodes of game of thrones
0: (laughs) and sadly i suspect that that might actually be the case for many educators around australia and the world Mm. that really is a a very important anxiety to try and manage i mean how do we do that from an administrational point of view Mm.
1: I think the idea is always to keep teachers at the core of their own professional um, development and growth. So with the work that I do with schools, there's there's lots of pathways into that. One of those pathways is through something called Action Research that a lot of folks are familiar with. That's when teachers identify the big puzzles of practice that they have and they work through processes to help them explore that puzzle of practice to make some movement forward with that puzzle of practice. Teachers own their own personal growth. So coming back to self-directed learning, a teacher might ask themselves, well, how do I help my children become more self-directed? And they own that problem. They mm. th- themselves find pathways through it.
0: Let's uh, step this up a notch, shall we? Principles, let's talk about principles. They really are the gatekeepers in this scenario. And if we're to take this to its natural conclusion, the buck stops with them. And you know, it's what we're talking about here is like the opening of the floodgates of change, if I can put it that way. Now, some have, some people have taken this on board. I know that Peter Hutton at Templestowe College in Victoria has done this with some great success and with uh, without any sort of idea as to how it was going to succeed. And one of the examples for them is that they, they have 120 electives for students to choose from, and uh, he employs students. So... Why aren't more principals doing this in light of the fact that there is evidence emerging amongst us here in Australia? You can actually go there. You can you can drive there. You can fly there. You can call them up on the phone and talk to them. Why, why aren't we doing this?
1: Hmm. Well, look, first off, I think it's in the language you're using here, gatekeeper. is that's It's important for principals to be that. And that's a central role of a principal because there are a lot of new ideas flying around in education all of the time. Yeah. And if you don't have a principal functioning as a gatekeeper, well, then a school can become a feather dancing on the breeze. Mm. It can just be blown in the direction of whatever the prevailing ideology takes it. So important for school to have its set of principles, its set of values, its understanding of who it is as a school, and then to think, how might we augment that with ideas that are flying around in the educational arena?
0: Yeah, I heard the comment once about uh, developing one's mental library. So effectively putting all of those things together, but then applying that in the best situation. But like I, I, I agree with you. I think principles do need to be good gatekeepers for, for exactly the reasons that you've mentioned. But the, the desire for change is being debated so wildly throughout the world at the moment. Why is it taking so long?
1: I wonder whether to some extent it's fear. It's underpinned by fear. I mean principal there's a lot of accountability being a principal or a part of an executive leadership team in a school and even obviously for teachers there's a huge amount of accountability Mm. here. If we embrace something that takes the school and its learners in the wrong direction well that's a potentially dangerous step with extensive consequences so I think that it's that potential concern about harmful side effects of what might be adopted that could drive some principals not wanting to embrace change And probably the same thing applies to anybody who's thinking about some form of significant change.
0: I asked Peter Hutton the question as to whether he thought he was lucky, because in his situation, the school was on the verge of closure. Mm. And there are many schools around the place that aren't on the verge of closure. And so for them, the risk level, I guess, is much higher. And you could use phrases like, well, Peter had nothing to lose on, Mm. on, on one hand. And uh, f- for uh, the first couple of years, he described it to me that the uh, the, the government or the uh, the educational uh, regulator was was so um, happy to just be able to distance themselves from the school and say, "Look, it doesn't matter. Let's let's see what comes out of that." Mm-hmm. But now that's actually turned around and it's turned into a success story. So I guess what I'm trying to say is. How do we get more people having the discussion and, and having the debate to say, look, really, what have you got to lose? Yeah. And do you, in fact, really have that much to lose?
1: Yeah, look, there's, there's a lot of schools out there, and particularly the very well-established ones, that are a little bit like the QE2. You know, they're slow, heavy, and it's difficult to change direction.
0: And many of them are quite beautiful with rose gardens and uh, manicured lawns. What, exactly. lovely places to Just like the QE2. Yeah. Like the yeah, and there's
1: shuffleboard and everything. It's fantastic. Let me
0: throw this idea at you. Do you think that uh, the teacher-centred versus student-centred debate has something to do with the concept of students being more like consumers rather than producers? And this comes back to Gatto's work that I referred to at the beginning of the conversation. In the end, we really are asking students to consume something that's been pre-prepared the student comes to school, you know, there's, there's a maths textbook, and that's the accumulated knowledge of a whole bunch of people who've been enterprising enough to write it down and sell them a maths textbook. Rather than getting the students to think about a problem in a mathematical way and getting them to solve that. Now, that might, some people might, again, say, look, that's just going to take forever if I've got to explain maths that way. It's just much easier to batch them through. But what do you think about the idea of students being more consumers than they are producers?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think this is... the idea- Questions like this are of fundamental importance. And I'm going to refer to a book by one of the Harvard educators called David Perkins. Um, and the book that he, he wrote is called Making Learning Whole. And in it, he takes this really interesting metaphor, this idea of playing the whole game. So if I just take a second to explore that metaphor. Sure. Well, what he talks about is that when we're when we as teachers are working with students it's very easy to get caught up in the minutiae of the detail of whatever the subject is that we're exploring. He's got a name for that too. He calls that aboutitis, itis a disease that we as teachers might suffer from, that we're constantly teaching them about the subject, mm. but they don't really understand why. Mm. You know? He also takes the analogy of a, of a game of baseball. If we want to teach children about baseball, well, we don't spend the whole of the first experience they have just teaching them how to pick the, pick the bat up off the ground. We let them play baseball. Yeah. So what Dave Perkins urges us to think about in that text is, how can we defeat the disease of aboutitis? How can we stop our children from learning about the subjects that we work with them on towards learning through the subjects? So we're not learning about mathematics. We're being mathematicians. Yeah. We're not learning about science. We're being scientists. How can we make that happen? And for me, often that comes through the use of, of things like big ideas in the classroom. So in history classroom, we might be uh, about to teach a unit on the industrial revolution, the British Industrial Revolution. We might take a big idea like, is economic profit- profitability more important than human rights? Okay. Now, if we take that really big idea, and that idea runs as a keynote, as a through line, through the whole learning experience then we're not just learning about the Industrial Revolution anymore. We're thinking about a really big ethical idea. Yeah. You know, is it okay for people to be exploited in the name of financial profitability?
0: It starts to pull them in, doesn't it?
1: We're, and then we learn, about, we learn about the Industrial Revolution, but in view of that big question that speaks to the human condition. So if we're going to overcome the disease of boutitis. It may be a powerful direction for teachers to think about what are those big questions that underscore everything that I'm exploring with my learners. Why does this subject and why does this topic matter?
0: This uh, lends weight to your idea that teachers are probably more important than ever now in a, in a student-centered model. Because what you're talking about there is more a, an insight-based model of helping someone understand a concept through their own life experience because you've had an extra 20 or 30 years to to think about these concepts so wisdom becomes very important Mm. if if a teacher really believes in the student-centered model let's say they they're listening to this conversation going yeah yeah i get it but i just don't think i'm quite there what do they need to think about first and how do how do they themselves need to change if if in fact there is a need for them to change
1: well, that would be the first thing, always beginning with what might that need be and is there really a need? I mean, it comes back again to the, the cultural force of time. You know, if, if teachers believe that their role is to disseminate information, that, that's what they're there for, mm. you know, to, to share their wisdom and their expertise with their learners, then that's what they'll allocate time to. Yeah. But if teachers believe that their role is to build a culture of critical and creative thinkers... To help young people become critical and creative thinkers, then that's what they'll allocate their time to. So, in working with schools who are sort of interested in these these ideas but don't really know how to start, I think it would be a mistake to start just by trying ideas. I think that the beginning point has always got to be to confront the fundamental beliefs. You know, do we really, really want to make the learning experience student centred? Is that really what the school values? Yeah, what, that's what are a good question, isn't it? What the values? Yeah, that's right.
0: School. And do we actually really talk about that openly and honestly enough, and and then actually write down an answer and stick to it? I mean, you might hear that question in a staff meeting. People might say, "Oh, yeah, I think that's a really good idea." And then there's a lot of talk, and then people say, "Right, that's it, time to go," and then they go back to their desks and they go home. Yeah. But how do we bring that, how do we sort of um, rewind that, if you like, if, if you can think about a movie where you see a scene happen and then they rewind it and whoop, okay, yeah. let's go back to where we started. No, actually what we thought was we'd get an answer, but we don't have an answer. How do we, how do we stop that moment in time?
1: You know what? When I walk past a the bakery, there's a lot of beautiful cakes in the, in the window display. You know, I can see I mean, my favorite chocolate brownies, <laughs> you know, I can see lovely cream cakes. I, I can see scones, you know, as an Englishman, I love those. But if I'm not hungry, then however beautiful those cakes are, I'm not going to purchase them. Mm. So we've got to start with the hunger. We've got to start with those core values and principles before we start trying to do something about it.
0: Maybe start asking some what-if questions. What if my day wasn't so busy? What if I thought that I had more time? What if I thought that my administrators in my school were actually listening to what I thought was a problem? Now, there's something controversial. Wow. How about that? (laughs) I'm
1: glad you said that and not me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm quite happy to take the responsibility. (laughs) Simon, we could talk for a long time on this. It's been great to speak with you today. Thanks so much for your time.
1: A pleasure. Thanks for having me along.
0: You've been listening to Learning Capacity, brought to you by LearnFast. If you'd like to know more about Simon Brooks, visit simonbrookseducation.com. If you'd like to know more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free. Search for Learning Capacity on iTunes or visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.